All right. So I'm here uh, on a Saturday morning on the East Coast of the United States, and we're going to talk to a very special guest here, Arves, who is the author of a new book on uh, AWS SageMaker and machine learning uh, on the, the machine learning uh, ecosystem of AWS. And uh, I thought I'll just turn it over to you and let you introduce yourself a little bit further and maybe even uh, give a, a plug to your book. Sure, sure. So hi, guys. Um, so I am Joshua Arvin Lat. People call me Arvs. So A-R-V-S. So from the name Arvin, so Joshua Arvin, the short notation is Arvs. So I am the Chief Technology Officer of NewWorks Interactive Labs. And like Noah, I'm also an AWS machine learning hero. So there's just a, a small group of um, professionals around the world who are known as machine learning heroes. And we're here to, to help, help the world with um, the machine learning knowledge that they need. And I'm also the author of the books, uh, Machine Learning with Amazon SageMaker Cookbook. And so that was released last year. And then this year, actually next week, uh, five days from now, the second book will be released. So the title is Machine Learning Engineering on AWS. So while the first book focused more on SageMaker, that's like 95% SageMaker, the second book is probably just around 10 to 20% SageMaker and then 80% other services and techniques. And it focuses more on automation, security, engineering, basically machine learning engineering. So the first book is more on machine learning and SageMaker, while the second book is focused on machine learning engineering using a variety of AWS services and techniques. Great. Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting maybe place to start, which is that, you know, because we both have a background with AWS as AWS ML heroes, and we obviously love AWS technology and use it all the time, um, that what what's interesting is that you're maybe covering more of the ecosystem uh, yeah. around AWS versus I think initially, uh, I think many people that were using AWS were thought that only SageMaker was the place to, to do machine learning. I, I certainly was like that at first. I was like, oh, you just do, do you know, machine learning with SageMaker. But it seems like the world has, has changed so quickly with machine learning that it, it seems like all of the other resources on AWS that are amazing, like let's say step functions or mm -hmm. Lambda or AWS batch is another one. There's all these really incredible services that potentially could be used uh, in, in addition to just to, to only SageMaker. And so was that part of your thinking in, in, in building the second book? Yes, yes, definitely. So, so to add more context, um, SageMaker is usually or generally the go-to service when it comes to performing machine learning experiments and deployments on AWS. Because for one thing, SageMaker is a mature service with a lot of features to the point that even one book, two books, or three books wouldn't be enough to help us fully understand and utilize SageMaker because of the number of features and the complexity. Um, but yeah, but yes, Noah is, uh, but yes, you're, you're correct, Noah, in the sense that there are different options and um, the professionals and the community should be aware that whenever they, there's a use case, choosing the right set of tools to combine and use needs to be assessed properly because the solution or the building blocks for one problem would usually be different when solving a different problem, especially the context, the size of the company using it, the familiarity with the tools and concepts. For example, for example, is a team of, let's say, data scientists who has no experience with Docker containers, for example, are they able to use this tool? For example, uh, would we recommend them using, let's say, Elastic Kubernetes Service plus Kubernetes and then Kubeflow? Um, especially if there's additional work to manage that cluster, you would recommend using something else. And the same with SageMaker. If people are comfortable with um, dealing with the more complex set of requirements, for example, is the team really going to use the, let's say, the multimodal endpoints of SageMaker? Would they make use of the asynchronous endpoints and all the other features available in SageMaker? Or are they fine without coding something at all because there are options where they can perform machine learning deployments and even inference even without coding a single line 
So there are options, let's say, SageMaker Canvas. And maybe that's something that's also available when you install an application inside an EC2. So again, it's case-to-case basis. It depends on the roles and the team members using the services. It depends on the budget also, the timelines, and also the, the roadmap of the company. So if they're planning to do more customization, they're planning to deal with more advanced machine learning and machine learning engineering requirements, then yes, they can opt for SageMaker. But it's important that they assess what other options are available also. Yeah. I mean, uh, what, what's, what's interesting is that um, there was, uh, I think it just maybe two days ago, I, I saw a post from the author of uh, Ruby on Rails, uh, DHH, and he said mm. that he's moving off of the cloud. And uh, and what's interesting is that, I mean, he, he usually has, I would say, almost all his posts are, are controversial posts. And some of them are good, though. I mean, I mean, like, mm. I think he has some very interesting ideas. But what he was talking about was that his company is mature because they're not really, they know the workload that uh, they're they're trying to accomplish and and they're they i guess in a sense he's also saying we don't need things like machine learning and uh ai right like they're they're, they're just building like a you know a content management system essentially and and it, in that case you know it's possible that that could be a, a good move for them but in terms of uh machine learning and uh and deep learning for example it seems almost impossible that that any uh, company would long-term want to avoid mm. using the cloud because of the cloud resources necessary. Mm. So, you know, like uh, petabytes of data or needing to spin up GPUs to to do fine-tuning, for example, you're fine-tuning a hugging face model. And, yeah. and so it, it seems like in some sense that one of the other things that's happening with uh with cloud computing is that it that it it itself was in a transitionary phase because in the the early phases of cloud computing there there was uh, i guess in a sense like a lift and shift mentality where where people were were getting out of their own data center and and there's a lot of technologies that are that are i would call them transitionary so a good example would be um you know emr right so like the idea that you always need to have uh, clusters of machines running is, I, I think, a transitionary uh, like idea. It doesn't mean it's bad, but like for Spark, for example, I think there are advantages to Spark because you can use things like Databricks or the Spark notebooks. But there's also disadvantages, and the cost could be just you know like substantial, right? Mm -hmm. it, it depends on what kind of company you're working at. Maybe your company can afford it. But for some companies, they they just they may not want that. But then you can see things like SageMaker has got a little bit of of transitionary technology, like it, it uses heavily the virtual machines. Mm. But then there's maybe some of the future things head, headed, which are you know containers and also you know the automail capabilities of Canvas. And so I think this is this you know I think there is going to be another uh, phase of doing machine learning engineering where companies will will look at cloud native uh, architecture where mm -hmm. where basically the idea that you should always be running a service 24/7 is in a sense like the early you know 2000s of of mm -hmm. of, uh, of software engineering and 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 so i think the idea that you should always have you know um, virtual machines running, training things, you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't know if that is the future. Like what, what are your thoughts around this idea of, you know, the, the pre-cloud era, the transitional era, and then the cloud native era. Do you, do you, do you see a, a direction headed uh, in, in machine learning? Yes. Yes. And I would also like to include the impact of the pandemic. Yeah. Yes. So, so yes. Um, so, so for more context, I'm around in my 30s already, so I have uh, experienced the same uh, things, and I have observed the same patterns. Um, yes, so what you mentioned, completely true, and one thing that I would like to note is there, there's, there's a certain like three to four years where multi-cloud um, and even the, the cloud-native stuff, um, that part um, 
there was a time when we had more tools on that because that was being implemented more in a lot of companies, especially those who encountered, say, regulatory issues or they, they need to make sure that um, they have this sort of, uh, they, their, their data is only stored in this country, so they are forced to use a different cloud provider. And what was mentioned earlier that, okay, no need to, or no need to use the cloud, no need to use machine learning and so on. I think it depends on the context of the company. All right. So when we're, when we're trying to solve the problem, it's not just about hearing or listening to what the tech experts say. Because usually what, they, what we say are context-based. There's a reason why we share that because that's probably what we're experiencing in our points in our lives. So it's, it's all about perception. Like, okay, on my end, uh, we use machine learning maybe 5% to 10% of the issues that we encounter, maybe 2 to 3%. Um, if we can solve the same problem with um, shorter time, easier set of tools and concepts, and we need to enforce it to more people who may not have an idea of what machine learning is, then maybe there's no need to use machine learning. It shouldn't be taken like truth that's 100% to all cases. Um, in, in the same way, what I would like to add to what you mentioned earlier is that the pandemic has definitely reduced the budgets of all companies. So a lot of companies have been retrenching, retrenching professionals, 50%, 75%. Uh, basically, a large portion of their workforce uh, would either have pay cuts or even lose their jobs, right? And there's very small budgets and smaller rooms for errors when dealing with machine learning requirements. So I believe that one of the major factors which would play in the next couple of months and even years would be that even after the pandemic, people expect that companies would probably spend more. However, I think that companies have been trained now to spend less and to be more practical. For example, let's say that you have an EMR cluster that's super big. The challenge there is that if you're a technical person, you would appreciate how EMR works. But if you're a part of the executive team, you would have to check the ROI. You would have to check, okay, what is the reason or why should we have this cluster is it really worth it? Let's say that is your company going to earn, let's say, $100,000, for example, and then the overall cost of managing that EMR cluster is, let's say, $90,000. So that there's only that $10,000 um, like, like difference, but the headache is like, oh, I'm managing like uh, a big team just to maintain this cluster. Maybe we can survive without it. So I think that's one of the major things that uh, would affect the decisions um, and I think that what people should know is that there's, of course, the trends. Machine learning will always be there because it's more of like uh, a solution to something, like security. Like, uh, for example, even if we're not security specialists, security will always be part of how we work. The same with machine learning. Whenever there's a problem that we need to solve, maybe we can use some sort of AI service or ML service to solve the same problem because it might be cheaper. So for example, uh, for example, in AWS, there's Amazon recognition. There are other tools there that if you have development or developer capabilities, you would be able to build something without building your own machine learning model. So in terms of cost, um, the, cost of the, the cost of the time spent by a certain employee plus the overall subscription cost of, of having that service running, if you add that, that would be um, a good measure if it's a practical practical project or not. And if we were to compare that with how much that company is going to earn or at least save costs, so either the company earns more or the, either the company is able to save more from that project. So those are the things that we should take into account. I believe that machine learning is here to stay. The cloud will always be there to stay. I think what DHH is saying is that we should properly assess the situation first. And this is one of the options. This is how he thinks. He thinks differently. And in some cases, maybe he's correct. So, so yeah, thank you for yeah. that. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right in terms of the cost uh, analysis that you know, it seems like the world is in a recession based on you know, the consensus of many people. And there's you know, some idea of the recession lasting at least all throughout next year, maybe even into 2024. Uh, and 
and you know, having gone through recessions before, uh, I've seen that. Yeah, there there is typically big layoffs. Like uh, apparently, one uh, report from Washington Post says Twitter could uh, could lose seventy five percent of their team. You know, like that's a very big uh, layoffs, and you know, percentages of companies are getting laid off. And so, I think the the chief technology officers or the CIOs or you know, VP of engineering, that the ones that do understand technology, I think they will absolutely look at the spend in terms mm -hmm. of cloud computing. And they'll, they'll ask the question, like you said, with ROI, say, well, wait a second, we're running a spark cluster. Why? W mm -hmm. What? Oh, the, we're spending, you know, $25,000 per month on a spark cluster, but what does it get us? Mm -hmm. Could we, is there an alternative to that? And so mm -hmm. if, if you look at other services on AWS, for example, the the key competitor could be Athena, right? Like, wait, why are we doing this? Why don't we just do a Athena query once a month? Yeah. And maybe the Athena query is a thousand, right? <laughs> or or, or I don't know what the, what the exact cost would be. So I think there's a huge opportunity in some sense for organizations to to be much more critical about the architecture. And so they they I don't necessarily agree that most companies should should think about getting off of the cloud i would say what they should really be thinking about is actually how do they better use the cloud and how do they yes. use services that are more event driven especially and, and i think with machine learning there there actually is a a, a a large amount of things you can do that are event driven like for example um one of them is that you could start to use more pre-trained models and yes. uh, with um hugging face now is is really becoming the leader mm -hmm. in this space where uh you could take a model that someone has uh, already developed mm. and then you could just do a, a small amount of fine-tuned training using let's say SageMaker mm -hmm. or using even batch right you could do however mm -hmm. you want to train it uh, and then you could put that model it could it could sit maybe in uh, s3 or it could sit in um, you know, uh, a uh, EFS or or, mm. or wherever it is that, or or batch or you know some some kind of a system where where you then just it, it it's sitting there, and yeah. maybe only once a month it runs right and and I I think there's there's a lot of opportunities to dramatically lower the the costs but also even the complexity, and and it, so it could be that one one of the things that happens is that. While there will be, uh, I think uh, there will be a lot of um, layoffs that mm. I think also the the result will be that the really talented people, uh, I think, will get more opportunity to to design better and more efficient architectures. Yes, yes. I, I completely agree with that. And to, to add on top of, uh, to build on top of what you just mentioned on how to save on cost. Um, one of the cooler things in SageMaker, for example, which I included in my second book, is the serverless inference endpoint. So in terms of cost costing, um, it's practical, it's more practical to use a serverless option whenever um, the spikes in usage is generally rare and maybe it's for internal use. There's there are no SLAs that are strict. Um, comparing it to a real-time option where the the server is always up and you would have to pay for that like constant amount even if the server is not being used so so there um so if so if let's say your model uh, the the fine-tuned one has is sitting in s3 maybe we can also like deploy it in a serverless inference endpoint even if the it, the server is large uh large uh in a sense that it's using um more resources we can deploy it there and um, have less worries when it comes to cost because we're using the serverless option. But I, I completely agree, uh, Noah, uh, on what you said um, earlier about um, do we need, really need this Spark cluster and so on. And, and right now, the, the blind spot, the blind spot of most tech professionals would usually be the business sense, the business sense and uh, the financial aspect. Yeah, so a lot of people generally like um, read the news and then they check the trends and then they try to study what's cool, what's shiny, 
and then they try to force the usage of tools even if those tools and services are not really the appropriate set of tools to solve specific problems. And, and right now, um, the leaders, especially the CEOs, CTOs, they generally don't have the time to dive deeper into the very technical details. So it's hard for them to assess if these tools are right. Usually, these tools are suggested by the technical leaders and the managers, right? Um, so there's that gap that if the, the CTO, CEOs, and the other leaders of the executive team are able to properly assess a proposal and check the long-term implications and impact on the company, hiring, um, overall cost, and management of it, then yes, um, people would be able to use machine learning better um, in the cloud and, and anywhere they deploy it. Yeah, I, th I think, that, yeah, the, the cost part of it is is something that isn't as exciting, but I've, mm. I've but also the complexity too. The I think one of the ones that is a little bit tricky is, uh, I would say, infrastructure as code and also uh, Kubernetes. Those are, those are two areas where I, I think there potentially should be some caution in that in the case of Kubernetes, if you were building, let's say, a lab environment for a online learning company or something, there, Kubernetes is very interesting, right? Because you could spin up all these different, you know, shells and, and experiment. If if you're just building, let's say, uh, a web service, mm. maybe Kubernetes is mm. actually not worth it in terms of the the complexity. Or you could also just put your web service onto S3 and just do a static mm. static hosting. So there, there's the the there's not only the cost of um, you know the service itself, which is one one role, but there's also the the technical complexity. So that that could be an interesting thing that we see as well with uh, you know cutbacks in technology. Is do people look at some of the things they're doing? Like you you mentioned the multi cloud thing. Like I wonder if some companies that are doing multi cloud actually don't use multi cloud anymore because they're like, wait a second, why are we doing this? We, mm. we, we have to have all these extra people to support multi-cloud and Terraform and all this other stuff. Maybe we should just use CDK. We should just yeah. use, and, and we should just actually get rid of Kubernetes and we should just use uh, a very simple, the, let's say that we want to use all the simplest services on mm. S3 and have maybe a third of the people. That That is possible. I think that is possible in some scenarios. Yeah. I completely agree. I'm talking about Kubernetes. So Kubernetes is a very powerful um, tool. I mean, I just call everything tools. Tools slash service slash framework. It's a platform or a framework, right? Um, I've been using Kubernetes for some time now. And whenever I'm hearing the stories of other people, um, I am surprised that even for smaller website builds, they try to force the usage of Kubernetes, even if it's not really necessary. I mean, on my end, one of the projects that I'm managing right now has like 30 servers and, and Kubernetes is really needed. There's tons of traffic. There are a lot of like um, running applications and services there talking to each other. So Kubernetes is a perfect like use for it. And like what you said, um, maybe something like if a project is super simple, let's say there's no edit capabilities needed, maybe you can just host it in S3. So S3 CloudFront. And then maybe route it to three, then deploy it, right? And that should be good for very simple sites. And then there are also other options where maybe you need a bit of logic, but you need to manage the cost. But again, it's for a small, um, small site. Maybe the combination of, let's say, that initial solution, S3 plus CloudFront. And then that's the viewing part. But once you need to update, maybe you can use something like Lambda and API Gateway where the post request um, and other like data related um, work can be uh, put can can be placed there so at least that would allow the team to manage cost early um, while still allowing some sort of scalability support long term as long as it's properly architected uh, making the project um, event driven also maybe they can use other options like um, sns and or even sqs and again, like what you said, it's the architecture that we need to focus on. Um, and when using these tools, people should not just do, just do things without thinking about 
the implications and long-term plans. People should architect it properly um, and people should know what options are available. They shouldn't just stick to one tool. They should check also that, oh, if I use other tools, how much time would it take me for, to learn it? Um, and how much time would it take for other people who will also use it, which is part of the team, to learn it and use it for the next 12 months? So, so there, um, just adding on top of what you said earlier. Yeah, it's it's a there's actually a there's a trade-off between on one hand the new technology, the reason that people that have been around the industry for a while gravitate towards it is that it is one way to increase your salary, right? If you mm. learn the new technology, like hugging face is a good example, mm. it would probably be a very good idea for most people to be experts in hugging face because mm. it's obvious. <laughs> Hugging face is where a lot of a lot of people are, are gravitating towards. But on the flip side, your company, maybe your, your company is doing, um, I don't know, content management. So does your company need hugging face? Like maybe they don't. I don't know. You know, mm. and, and so there is always that trade off of what, what do I do to help my own career? And then what does the company need? And there is some conflict always mm. between that. And so th then from a management perspective, that's the tough part is on one hand that the most talented employees want to use the latest stuff. And yeah. so if you don't let them use the latest stuff, then they'll just leave right? Yeah. And, then they'll, and they'll go to another company. So there is no perfect answer to, to this, but, but I do think if, if there are um, examples, you know, if, if a company is trying to look at the ROI, typically, there's a there's something I call Yagni, which is you ain't gonna need it mm. approach, which is a reasonable approach, which is like, do I really need this technology? Um, a lot of times the answer, if you're even asking the question, like the Spark cluster, eh, maybe you don't. Maybe <laughs> maybe you don't need that technology. Um, maybe to shift gears for a second, one one uh, thing that I think is emerging that is very AWS centric is. Uh, the cloud-based development environments. Mm. And so I've been using Cloud9 for mm. a long time, and I, I love programming at Cloud9. And then one thing that changed a little bit was that GitHub Codespaces came out. And mm. I've been using now GitHub Codespaces as almost a substitute for Cloud9 mm. because GitHub Codespaces has GPUs, it has CPUs, oh. and, and you can pre-build them as well. So wow. with GitHub Code Spaces, it can load uh, essentially uh, the the, uh, the the image very very quickly mm -hmm. with all of your packages inside of there, and also the Copilot tool that does auto completion of your code. It, it can actually write you know algorithms for me and even work very well with AWS. And I've actually used Code Spaces plus Copilot to build all kinds of you know AWS code, and now. With AWS, they also have um, uh, Code Whisper, mm. and so Code Whisper kind of does the same thing. Is ha has that been something you've been looking at a little bit? The 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 AI pair programming. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I personally haven't used the I haven't personally used um, the GitHub alternatives, but yeah, for Code Whisperer, um, on my end, I personally have the tendency to uh, not rely on the, the autocomplete, but I believe most um, developers right now, the new generation, the new generation are able to work faster with the shortcuts and the uh, autocompletion. So it depends on the, the generation, I believe. Because when, when I started programming, I started with gedit, notepad, and notepad++. And then when I was debugging maybe the JavaScript applications in the past, maybe 15 years ago, um, I had to do a lot of testing and I needed more familiarity with what I'm working on. But I believe right now, um, those types of like AI-powered solutions are actually very helpful, especially if done correctly. So, so for example, if you're coding and, it, and the tool or the plugin is automatically like providing the right set of um, shortcuts and basically it auto-completes it and you just need to put a couple of um, additional code blocks there, then if it helps with the productivity part, then good. Again, we, we, boil, we 
we go back to what's the problem that we're trying to solve? Would we really need the tools? And I think in most cases, as long as the, the costs are, are good in terms of like how much should we pay for the subscription, then yes. Um, I, I am heavily using Cloud9, especially for, for my projects. Um, and yeah, it helps me because in terms of like deploying it, um, working with other AWS resources, especially if the project is AWS heavy, the Cloud9 is a good option. But of course, if some if, if professionals like, um, let's say, the GitHub options more, then, then go for it, especially if it has the need for, let's say, the GPU ones. I believe in Cloud9, there's no GPU option yet, yeah. as far as I can remember. There's just three options there, maybe a drop-down, but I think there's no GPU option left. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I I think I think that you know happy because I I I initially use so much Cloud Nine. I mean, just mm. I love Cloud Nine. Like because what what I like about Cloud Nine is the AWS tools are already installed, yeah. right? So you know S three uh, mm. AWS S three LS, right? I can just mm. run run look at my buckets, or I can talk to Lambda, and and, and it's and also I can have separate. Um, cloud nine environments for separate projects, mm. you know, and, and, and all that's helpful. Or I could spin up a really large one uh, to do, you know, build containers and also the integration with the other services. Like if I wanted to invoke a Lambda endpoint and then test it out. But to your point, like I, I think the the lack of GPU uh, is, is potentially one reason why someone might want to use mm -hmm. code spaces. Now, of course, you can do AWS development in code spaces as well, right? So there, people people do uh, development for AWS in lots of different environments. What I see as a trend is I think 2023 might be the year where a significant amount of developers, they stop using their laptop or mm -hmm. their workstation for, let's say, 80% of the work and they start to move everything into a cloud-based environment. And what also could happen is that like the VP of engineering, for example, could say, listen, I want everybody to, to use a, a cloud-based development environment. Mm. We're going to pre-provision this environment for you with all of the libraries that we're working on. And, and in some sense, that could be a good idea because now you for sure can do this with code spaces because they have a template. I don't know in the future what will happen with Cloud9. I, I would imagine they would do similar things, but if you could pre-provision a cloud-based environment for someone to develop in that has all of the tools loaded, it, you could potentially really help people be more productive. Has that been something you've seen in your your companies as well? Are, are there lots of teams using cloud-based environments? Yes, good question. So I encountered this specific topic maybe six years ago. So yeah, around, around that time. I think that that type of conversation has been running for quite some time. But I think that in terms of timing, there's probably a sudden like um, surge or increase in the interest in using cloud-based environment. So on my end, I'll, I'll, I'll share a little story regarding that. So when I was um, actively developing, like 90% of my time was spent developing um, websites, systems, automation stuff. Nine, eight years ago, nine years ago, um, I was working mostly in my local machine. And then I, I, I was able to work with someone, um, a more senior and a more practical person, who told me, okay, when there's a new project, especially if you're dealing with a lot of projects, he gave me the advi advice that actually I just spin up um, an EC2 instance, and then I just code there. I'm not sure if Cloud9 was available at that time, but people were already like using the cloud environments as their local local machines already. It's local machine. They just call it local. So yes, I, I tried doing that for some of the projects, especially if the projects are hard to set up. For example, for example, there are some databases, for example, MongoDB, where if we are to use a different version, uninstalling it in your local machine and changing the, the version of MongoDB is quite tricky. Let's say 4.2, and I, have, I, forgot, I forgot the versions now. Let's say 3 point something to 3.9 or something. Um, then shifting 
to another version, uninstalling the previous one and fixing the installation would definitely break your local machine if you don't have if you are not using containers. Um, and if you just installed it in the root namespace, meaning like it's installed in your machine, you might break something there and it's hard to fix. Um, so that's one, that's one. So in terms of like, as long as there are advantages and there's a reason for people to move to cloud-based environments, then then yes. If people are just starting to learn how to code, then maybe it's a better, still a better idea to use local machines, especially if they're not yet employed as a developer. Because mm -hmm. of course, there's additional costs when you use those environments. People might accidentally like leave the, the Cloud9 environments and instances running for like 24-7, even if there's no one using it. Of course, there's that con configuration that maybe after four hours, it would like shut down so that you can use it again later. But again, um, developers, especially the newbies, are not aware of those options. They just follow a blog post and then, ta-da, um, I'm fine with the setup. However, when the, the bill comes up, uh, comes out, they would be surprised, oh no, I should have used my local environment instead. However, I think there will be more scenarios, especially for those working on more complex projects and also those who are working on a lot of projects all at the same time to use cloud-based um, environments. And in terms of like the practicality of it, especially in making sure that the developers are focusing on the development work, it's easy to clone environments in the cloud, right? So in, let's say that you have an EC2 instance um, that's being used by one developer and you want that setup copied to other developers. And let's say there's 30 developers in your team. In order to enforce, let's say, compliance requirements, in order to enforce uh, developer practices, developers will no longer have an excuse because your cloud team is able to manage that and ensure that there's um, that predictability in how the cloud environments are set up. If we need to, let's say, ensure that their, um, if we need to ensure that their configuration is correct, and in terms of like troubleshooting, it would be easier also because they're all using the same um, base environment. But yes, I'm I'm seeing an increase also, especially now where a lot of apps are starting to become distributed as well by default, because in the mm -hmm. past it's it's mostly monolithic, right? So now that we need to deal with more complex architectures. Definitely, Docker containers would be there. And yeah, a lot of applications and tools need to be connected to each other. And developers would be using, would be working on a lot of projects, which would definitely affect how we work um, in our dev lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it, it, when you're talking, it, it reminds me that when I was working in the Bay Area, that multiple companies I worked at. Uh, similar timeline as you, it would take one or two or even more weeks to get a new developer just their their workstation configured. Yeah, right? and you think about the amount of time that 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 wastes, and sometimes it it, it would never be perfect. To in mm. <laughs> and that's just a, a a cost you can never get back. And similarly, like let's say somebody works at a company for two years, which is I think mm -hmm. normal in the Bay Area. If uh, that would be 24 months, so if if one of the 24 months is completely gone mm -hmm. because they're just spending that one month configuring their workstation and it's not even done correctly, that's a that's a, a cost, right? That can never mm -hmm. be uh, returned. So that could be one of the reasons why companies are are gravitating towards a centralized environment for development. The other one is the uh the the workforce is now distributed and in mm. and, and i think the bay area used to be the place that everybody went to uh but it doesn't look like it's coming back in the short term mm. um based on some of the data like the office space in the bay area is is gone right i mean there there's nobody coming back to the bay area and it would be in many cases i think a bad economic decision for someone to move that's a recent college grad to the Bay Area uh, be, because of the housing prices are so high, you would never be able to purchase a place to live. And and uh, and especially if the fact is, is that you can live anywhere in the world mm -hmm. in many cases. So that also kind of 
pushes things towards maybe a cloud-based environment because when you're in cloud nine, the latency to the servers you're working with is extremely low. So I, I, I wonder if in a way the, the analogy would be that because so many companies have gotten rid of commuting and, and I, I forgot what the, the, the latest uh, metrics are, but many, I, I've seen some articles that talk about how, you know, people that realized that they, they were spending two to four hours a day for, you know, five, let's imagine it's two hours because in the Bay Area, it's common, two hours per day, two times five, that's 10, uh, 10 hours per week, just driving in a car. Uh, and then there's 52 weeks in a year, right? You, you've got this, uh, you, you've got this like, you know, thousands and thousands of hours just wasted throughout mm. your working career, driving somewhere that can never get, you can never get that back. It's so similarly with with um, by moving to 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 a uh, centralized environment for for doing development in a sense you're like recapturing some mm. of the lost uh, productivity. So it, in some sense, it's the the remote working trend mm. and the cloud development environment are almost merging together. Yeah. Yes, I would like to build on top of what you said. Those are actually uh, valid points. So I would like to add that in terms of like the, the, the HR aspect of things, the uh, people joining new companies, people leaving, and so on. I think from a technical or developer standpoint, in the past, before the pandemic, it was more or less normal for a developer to leave uh, to to stay in a company, let's say for two to three years, usually around that number. Of course, there would be times where a developer would like set, let's say leave every one year or two years. But I think generally it it's around two to four years for developers. For other um, types of work, maybe it's different. But usually for developers, it's usually two to three years. Uh, on my end, I generally stay for four to five years. Um, I have just just weird uh, rule. So that I can dive deeper into the company's problems. Because when you stay longer, of course, you would be taking on more serious types of requirements, which wouldn't be given to those who generally leave in one year, right? Because if you share the secrets of the company, then why would you give it to someone who would just leave six months from now, right? Mm -hmm. so, so nowadays, because of the pandemic, what I'm seeing is that a lot of people are actually staying um, in... Um, shorter period of time, um, this last two to three years. Um, there are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of reasons. and But basically, just observing the pattern without any story. Yes, um, one developer joining your team, let's say yesterday, after one year, regardless of the reason, they might, they might leave your company. So what you mentioned earlier about having those cloud environments ready on day one would help... Um, make it easy for a developer to be onboarded. So usually when you are part of the management team, one of the things that they measure is the time it takes to onboard a person. The familiarity with the tools, the familiarity with the business and the projects. And usually the first couple of months would be an investment. So if it's going to take a team four months of investment, investment meaning the company is losing money to train someone, um, and if that same person leaves after eight months, then that would be sad because you want that person to stay for eight years because the onboarding time is very, uh, what's the proper term for it? Um, it's expensive. Yes. So if we are able to speed up the onboarding process and reduce it to one day to two days and also improve the other um, hiring processes, let's say the interview processes, and once they're in, they have already have an environment set up for them and now that people would probably want to work from home, um, the company may no longer need to give them laptops because it's all in the cloud. So in terms of like the, the cost analysis uh, work needed there, we just compare the cost. Uh, how much cost, how, what's the overall cost of having that la laptop used and maintained? Because after, let's say, three to four years, that laptop would break down. Um, and at that point, even the person using that laptop may no longer be there. 
So in terms of continuity and optimization, I believe that what you just said uh, regarding the, the, the prediction that more people would use cloud-based development environments, I think there's a very high chance of that happening in the next um, one to two years, or maybe now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the other thing I think that's interesting is the, the virtual machine concept in a way is also a transitionary technology in that I, I think many people that are, that are using containers on a daily basis like some components of it, which is that you can look inside of a Docker file and you see what's inside of your, your image. You, you know exactly what's happening where on a virtual machine, sure, there are tools that can, you can help, you know, make a golden image, but it's, you know, it's extremely complex. So I, I wonder if that's another trend that we'll see, which is that potentially, I don't know how long it'll take, maybe 2024, uh, but basically the the concept of a virtual machine in many scenarios may not make sense because mm. they're just, they take too long to launch. And I, I think that's another thing with AWS that I'm, I'm curious about, you know, just knowing how they always are making things improved. I wonder if services that use virtual machines, like even cloud nine, for example, like it, it would take a few minutes to, to launch a machine. Like why doesn't it launch in 10 seconds or, yeah. you know, three seconds. Right. And yeah. that, that, that could be an, another interesting area that, that we'll see potentially is more and more containerized uh, environments and can containerized services, uh, which I think is interesting. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you for that. That's actually a very valid point. Um, there are many, um, there are many, um, there are many like angles where we can um, talk about this topic. So the first angle I would like to, uh, to focus on would be the, the community. The, the professionals using those tools. I believe that the virtual machines are there to stay, but of course, over time, people would use more containers, right? Um, for example, um, in terms of the trends, maybe in the Philippines where, where, where I live, um, there's usually that three to four year gap that let's say in the US, um, you're using this tool, maybe we would adapt that and more companies in the Philippines would adapt that in maybe four years. In the past, there's a sudden boom um, in machine learning usage in other countries. Well, maybe now and in last year, the Philippines is catching up. So for those um, companies and professionals still using um, and haven't migrated to the cloud, I think the virtual machine option would be the easiest, um, like the first step. And once they're more familiar with it, that's the time they try to study containers. The good news here is that the workforce, um, the professionals, especially the, the fresh graduates, are starting to become more advanced as well. So one of good example of that is that when I was in high school, um, our research projects were kind of simple 20 years ago. However, when I became a judge in one of the school competitions a few years ago, I was surprised that they had some IoT stuff there already, uh, which, of course, is a bit high tech for their age. They're only high school, right? And now, the fresh graduates, I think right now, it's more or less a requirement or prerequisite to have Docker knowledge now. Otherwise, they would struggle in the tech world. Because in the past, maybe ten, maybe five to seven years ago, when Docker, I forgot what year Docker started, but when it was 0 0.4 before, in the Philippines, there are only a few companies using it, and most companies are using it incorrectly. Because people are like treating Docker containers like virtual machines, when in fact, they shouldn't. Yeah. Um, there was one, there is one time when there was an AWS event, um, and I was one of the speakers. One member asked me, oh, Hey, our, our, our database is inside a Docker container. There's no volume attached. And then it stopped. <laughs> uh, we couldn't get the data back. Um, I told them that that's not how Docker is used. Um, and they just used the tool because they thought that it was like a virtual machine. However, Docker is not a skill, but rather it's an enabler for a certain type of architecture and process, mm -hmm. right? Uh, of course, Docker, Docker containers and containerization in general um, has a lot of advantages, but if used incorrectly, you might end up um, causing a lot of problems for your company. But yeah, going back to what I said, people should try to learn more about containers 
And then, yeah, d- Docker, maybe Docker Swarm, or maybe use something like ECS. And once you know a bit of Docker already, maybe if your skill level is around 3 over 10 or 4 over 10 of Docker, maybe you can use some sort of managed service, or maybe even use Lambda. So Lambda plus a custom container image. Even if you have no idea how to deploy production-level um, container setups in the cloud, then doing something that involves a managed service and Docker containers would already um, have you deploy something that's stable. But yes, um, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah, and, and I would say maybe a final topic that we can talk about that you brought up is the education aspect of what's happening. Because I'm teaching uh, people cloud computing at the graduate level in, in universities, but I also see at the high school level that there is an aptitude for students to learn cloud computing and AWS actually has very good free resources to teach mm. students uh, via the AWS Academy. Mm. And so you can spin up a learner lab and it has uh, essentially cloud nine and you can, you can learn all of this uh, on your own. So what I see as well is that the high school student in some sense can be cloud certified, mm-hmm. let's say by, let's say 16, I think, easily. Mm-hmm. Many students yeah. would get Solutions Architect certified and even learn a little bit of Python, maybe like you said, learn a little bit of containers and that potentially in some scenarios, you know, I think there could be a vocational track for mm-hmm. students where they look at the cost of the university and they say, well, uh, maybe I don't need that for what I'm doing. In some cases, maybe they do. They, they, they want to go to university at the same time. But it, it, at least in the United States, one of the problems with the university system is that the cost is so high in, in terms of the ROI that some majors, that people are in debt for their whole life. Uh, mm. you know, so for example, in the US, if you got a film degree, and it costs $350,000 and then you couldn't become a, a filmmaker, then you're in, in the United States, you're in debt for your entire life. Mm-hmm. And you, even if you go bankrupt, you still have to pay the debt off. Mm-hmm. And, and so then I think a lot of people are looking, they're looking a little bit more carefully at college and saying, wait a second, uh, I should be very careful to not get in debt for my entire life. And, and, and so that is one scenario both in the u.s and globally is that it is possible that someone in high school could uh, develop the expertise for aws and actually just get a job right at 18 and and maybe they still go to college but they go they find like a lower cost college and and they study some things uh, but they're also working maybe full-time have you seen any of those kind of trends Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for that. Um, that's actually very uh, important. So especially for those listening to this uh, podcast, um, this session, uh, maybe a certain portion of those listening right now would probably be in that state that, where do I start? And how would what's the practical way to learn all of these things? If you're a student or even a professional trying to shift um, domains or, or expertise, um, one of the I'll share some of the techniques that I've learned also. So for one thing, the students should try to learn all of the professional like uh, tool the, the tools that professionals are using, the techniques and the strategies because it's starting to become a bit more competitive now because companies have less budgets, especially on the on the payroll payroll side, right? Um, and and also the students are more aggressive because they're younger. And what what companies are trying to avoid now is for them to train, to train and invest on students or fresh grads for one to two years, only to find out that person will resign after one year or two years, right? Even if there's a bond, so maybe the bond is for one to two years, and that 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 fresh grad plus two years would leave, right? So ideally, or at least mo- most companies would try to hire fresh grads who already have experience or knowledge using those tools. That said, how can a student 
use and learn, let's say, AWS and other uh, tools. Let's say, how can they learn how to properly use GitHub and all of the services and capabilities available there? And with the AWS services, which are so many in terms of count. So one recommendation I would make is for people to have a good like base knowledge on the finance aspect. I mean, finance is a complex domain. However, as long as they have an idea on, okay, what's the final amount I would pay if I were to do this, then that's a good like guide that, that's a good guide already. Because if you're already paying for um, a lot um, in just in the education aspect um, of being enrolled in college, right? Um, you don't want to spend any more additional um, costs for additional resources. So what I do is I um, I have a subscription, personal subscription in some of the services um, slash apps, like let's say Quick Labs. So Quick Labs, for one thing, there's, um, I can't remember how much it is right now. I think it's $8 or something. It might change. However, the advantage there is that I am able to learn how to use the different AWS resources, uh, AWS services, even if it's outside my account. Mm -hmm. Because if you have your own account and you have no idea how to use AWS, maybe the next day you wake up, oh no, I'm going to pay for $100,000, right? You want to avoid that. So for those trying to learn something new, I can't remember if it's Cloud Academy or something, even Pluralsight, um, and even um, Linux Academy or A Cloud Guru. I can't remember which ones. People have to check. If there's an option for them to pay a constant amount, and for them to provision resources and dive deeper into those tools and then get certified because they have hands-on knowledge already, then that's a good strategy. So what I did in the past is when I was getting started with AWS, I wanted to get certified in SolArc Azure Sheet. I prepared myself to become a SolArc Pro even if it's just a SolArc Azure Sheet exam. So what I did is that all of the Quick Labs laboratories, I did all of that two times. So I already had like um, maybe a nine over ten in terms of like architecture, infrastructure, knowledge, and experience because I was able to use a lot of tools and services already. And people can do the same thing. The second one would be reading books. Um, people have a tendency to just just do it and then just tell the. Just tell companies, I can learn fast. However, if a person is still learning inside a company, there's a chance or a risk of that student or a person or a fresh grad making mistakes. And mistakes need to be reduced. Professionals are not in a company to learn. They are there to contribute and help the company succeed. Because right now, managing your own company is hard. The success rate of companies right now are super low. And a lot of companies are closing. So right now, in terms of like the risk appetite of companies investing on someone and trusting someone who hasn't used those tools, there's that uh, smaller um, risk accepted, uh, accepted risk um, right now. So what I would recommend is for people to read more books. For example, when I was getting started with machine learning, um, I read your book, Noah. It actually helped me get started with machine learning. I'm actually a big fan. So I still remember that book. It's the, the Pragmatic AI book. And it was a really um, well-written um, book. And after one month, two months, after reading that along with the other uh, resources and getting my hands dirty with uh, hands-on work, I was able to pass the beta exam of the AWS machine learning uh, specialty exam. And then after some time, maybe a year or two after, I even became one of the members who were updating the exams. So um, I was able to do that because I read books more. Because sometimes people rely on just researching when there's an issue. However, it's better if people already have a good idea of what issues would happen so that issues would be prevented so that they no longer have to solve that anymore because they never encountered that problem in the first place. So having that ability to research and dive deep without making mistakes is uh, some sort of approach that I personally am doing, which allowed me to, to be more productive because I, less, I, I make less mistakes because I've done my research and homework ahead of time. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. I think, I think that the two would, you know, to summarize what you're saying is that 
the two resources that are really helpful for people are labs. So you get access to either, if you're a student, you could get access to AWS Academy for free, even in high school. And they do have lots of labs, or you could use Quick Labs uh, and, and, and do that, or some kind of cloud platform like O'Reilly, Pluralsight, mm -hmm. et cetera. And then the, the second part too is, you know, I guess we're a little bit biased because we both write books. But you know, my experience is that w people that that write the books are 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 actually spending a lot of their own time to condense something mm -hmm. and put it into a form that makes it very useful to you. And so by reading that resource, you're just saving a lot of time. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's that's a, that's a big a big component of it because you could figure out some of these things on your own. But it's so much more efficient. So I, mm. I would I would say that getting access to whatever the books are on the topic, and also having the labs, and and you can in some cases do that based on like O'Reilly has subscriptions. I know your books are on O'Reilly. That that actually could be one way that someone could could learn as well. Is you could also read the the content online, and then if you like it, you can also buy a copy of that that particular book and refer to it. Like I do that all the time. I'll, I'll read something online, and then I'll have the book right next to me, and I'll mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll I'll look look for it for notes. And I guess I'm I'm almost in a way very um, positive towards all technical books, where if it's like a fictional book you know, about, I don't know, Game of Thrones or something, maybe I would be more critical and say, oh, I don't like the story. But I, I almost have never read a, a technical book that I didn't like <laughs> because <laughs> because a technical book is simply essentially just telling you useful information. Mm. And so the more technical books that you can read, the better, in my opinion. And then, and I even will read all of the books on one topic. So if I needed to understand deep learning or TensorFlow or PyTorch or AWS, well, I mean, maybe I'm different than other people, but I would try to read every single book there was on the topic because it just saves me time. Like if I want to be an expert on something, why wouldn't I just read the four books on that, mm. on that particular topic? So I think this is a great advice that you give and, uh, and maybe we could close with, uh, mentioning the, the, the two books, that you wrote that other that other people could uh, could find uh, and uh, learn from. Sure, sure. Thank you for that. Um, so the books I wrote um, would be machine learn. So the titles would be machine learning with Amazon SageMaker cookbook. The reason that why there's a cookbook word there is that it's more on the hands-on part. So there's the the problem to be solved. The actual solution, so step-by-step -step solutions, and then the explanation on well, how that happened. So people would have a deeper understanding on how the tools work because they're able to try it. And then the second book would be Machine Learning Engineering on AWS. Um, it focuses more on the automation side, the engineering side, the ML ops part, building ML pipelines, um, even security, um, a bit of network. And so on. So those two books complement. And I would also would like to let you guys know that um, I, again, I'm a big fan of Noah. He wrote a lot of books. So when you check his profile, it only says maybe author of this book. But if you check his Amazon page, there's like how many books have you written, Noah? I think I'm on number ten right now. Wow. Oh, so so amazing. Um, I probably won't reach that number. Maybe three would be the max. But again. Um, Books are, uh, the, the good books that I've read would include the MLOps book that they have, Noah. Um, because when I was reading it, there's a certain section there with, which is, so 70, so 70 to 80% of the book is technical. And then the 20% there um, includes your advice to those who are working on that field. Because that's hard to find. Because most books are focused on the technical part, how to do this, how teams should use it. But in terms of like the real experience when when in practice that's hard to find so i would recommend um the books of noah also yeah great and, well, and, and yeah. sorry just to add and also this event also when i when i check the other um the other the entire page of um ml ops um uh, enterprise ml ops um 
I think there are a lot of like different interviews where people can learn from and people will learn and make less mistakes if they're able to listen to the advice of the experts from the industry. So amazing initiative, Noah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks. Uh, I definitely have enjoyed reading uh, your latest book uh, and I'm still going through it and I'll, I'll, I'll definitely refer to it uh, when I'm, when I'm doing stuff on AWS and I, and yeah, appreciate your time and, and look forward to maybe talking to you again in the future. Thank you. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.